The following program contains views, ideas, and opinions that have been produced by the host DJ and their guests, and are not reflective of the views of WRFL or its underwriters. For questions, comments, or concerns, please email programming at wrfl.fm. Good evening, and welcome to Campus Voices, a program where we take a look at what's going on in the Lexington and UK campus communities. I'm your host, Sarah Simon-Patches, and today we are discussing the maltreatment of Muslims around the world with specific looks at the killing of Uyghur Muslims in China, violence against Muslims in India, and the maltreatment of female Muslims. Muslims are regular people just like us, but as Black people have been racially discriminated, so have Muslims been discriminated against. Muslims have been very discriminated in many places around the world and have been painted in a negative light. Actions of several radical Islamist terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, as well as several of, of their countries have contributed to this discriminatory norm. This discrimination has occurred in many forms and places. According to a study by the Pew Research Center, statistics show that the most common form of discrimination cited was being treated with suspicion, as 32% of those the researchers spoke to commented, followed by being singled out by airport security at 19%, being called offensive names, 18%, being singled out by law enforcement at 10%, and being physically threatened or attacked at 6%. Airport discrimination has been one of the most regular discrimination for Muslims. WFL reporter Ola Ornitiri reports an incident that took place at an airport in the United Kingdom that represents this discrimination. According to a study from Pew Research Center, Muslims in these like airports the Guardian reported a story about the discrimination some Muslims faced in airports. On March 26, 2016, Hassan Aldawachi, Iraqi-born Sheffield Halam student, was discriminated on the plane for dressing Muslim. Aldawachi, who was going back home to see his family from a science conference in Vienna, texted his wife before the plane took off to let her know the plane was delayed, and a woman sitting beside him got up and left. The police arrived moments later and detained Hassan for four hours. After his phone was confiscated, he was left at the airport with no onward ticket or refund. The reason? His message was in Arabic. The story is just one of the several injustices and discriminations Muslims face on a daily basis. For WRFL Radio, I'm Ola Onitari. We are going to have three Muslims educate and share thoughts and stories regarding the topic. We have Bilal Sheikh, the Vice President of the Student Government Association here at UK, Isha Khan, an Indian Bellarmine student, and UK student Hudu Kudma. Thank you all so much for being with us tonight. So firstly, any of you can feel free to comment on this and uh, elaborate further on your experiences, but do the statistics from the Pew Research Center about the dis different types of discrimination, does that shock you? How does that make you feel? Um, I don't think that that statistic really shocks me because, as you all uh, have touched on previously, discrimination and oppression against Muslims is a pertinent issue, and it's a prominent issue that's manifesting in different regions of the world, especially in America. And um, I've I've had family members that face that sort of uh, oppression, that sort of discrimination. I've I have friends that have parents that were prisoners of war. And in that, in that light, I've kind of seen the firsthand effects of discrimination and how that like manifests itself in different families, if that makes sense, and how that like kind of translates into 
their American experience. For me, I've been called names that weren't, you know, the the nicest names. I've been called the terrorist before, you know, that sort of stuff. But compared to some of the things that my friends or their family members have gone through, like my experience is kind of a walk in the park. Does anyone else want to share their experiences or kind of their feelings about the statistics? Yeah, thank you, Sarah. I don't, I agree with Isha. I don't think that that shocks me at all. Um, I think, you know, the only thing about it that that may be surprising is that it's only 19% or only 32%, I believe, you know, is the plurality. And I think that may just be a product of, of where I'm from, you know, being a Muslim from Kentucky and, you know, in the South. But I think, you know, obviously where you are and, and how you present yourself um, can really open up the door for, for a lot of these forms of, of oppression or, or, or violence even. I think, you know, appearances and, and th- that first impression, um, whether or not the person is wearing a headscarf or, or has a, a long beard or, you know, I mean, those, you know, really do impact the levels of, of oppression that any individual may face. So I would be interested in, in seeing w- what the statistics are in regards to those people who are more, you know, presentably or outwardly Muslim. I was actually just about to say that I completely agree with the law because I think that we don't look at, I was frankly surprised by the percentages. I didn't think they would be as low as you stated. I think there's a lot of factors in play as to how maybe this research was done. Um, I also believe that a lot of Muslims will ignore the indirect biases because we think it's so normal. So we overlook those things. And those are things that we may not even have mentioned or or things that I may, even myself as a hijab and myself, I overlook and then I look back, I'm like, oh wait, that was something. So I think these are things that I think we've all grown up with. There's a lot of things that we don't point out straight to you, but it is something that we later on realize it is as a bias. Well, thank you all for sharing your experiences. Um, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned kind of the inherent bias um, and those kind of stereotypes. I'm interested if you all have anything that you can recall where you kind of stepped back later on and you're like, wait, that wasn't normal. That wasn't right. I wasn't treated the way that I expected to be treated. Um, So just recently, I was fundraising because um, I'm putting on this fundraiser for Uyghur Muslims. um, And that the fundraiser is like closed already, but it was through UofL's MSA and Bellarmine's SGA is a collaboration. And so I was going door to door and I was knocking. And this one guy was like, Oh, so you're Muslim? And then I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, you're Indian too. And I was like, uh-huh. And then he was like, well, there's a there's an Indian family that lives right across. Why don't you go ask them for money? And then I was like, so then I like, I clapped back. I said, you know, I would, but you could also give me money so I could double like the, the amount of money that I collect tonight. And he was like, all right, how much do you want? And then I was like, all right, whatever you want to give me, like whatever you're comfortable with. He pulls out straight up a $5 bill. Like he like, like he's acting like he's like Eminem out here, like with his like $100 bill. He's like, here you go, here's $5. And I was like, thank you, sir. Thank you. And that happened, a similar experience happened fundraising again. And I um, knocked on someone's door and then they were like, I was talking about, because the fundraiser for is for Uyghur Muslims. And one of one of the dudes, he was like, he was like, Oh, I was like, yeah, it's it's a, it's an actual genocide taking place in China right now. And he's like, a genocide? Oh, did the 
was it like the Holocaust? Like blah, 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 blah. He couldn't fathom the fact that there's actually a genocide going on in China right now against Muslims. And I was like, it's literally millions of Muslims are being tortured. They're being sterilized. They're having forced abortions. And it's it's atrocious. There, there are multiple articles that state that it's at the same scale as the Holocaust. It's a modern day Holocaust taking place right now. And the world is silent about it. And when I brought that to his attention, he was just a little taken aback, but he didn't respond appropriately in my eyes because he was kind of like, oh yeah, okay. Like he, he kind of pushed it away. And I was just like, what the, what the heck, man? And so that was my experience with just dealing with some really Islamophobic type people. In your all's opinion, do you think that these stereotypes and the way that people just inherently treat Muslims and well, generally people that don't look like them, do you think that's taking attention away from the current genocide and kind of making people brush it off because they aren't paying attention to that kind of thing anyway? Basically, yeah, because I went door to door in my neighborhood. And before when I was doing a fundraiser for Dance Blue through my school, it was like a mini marathon for my high school. Everyone was like open wallets, ready to give. But the, the second I said Muslim... They were like, oh, no, sorry, can't, like, sorry, like, sorry, I can't help you, uh, oops. I think, yeah, to, to answer your question, Sarah, I, I do, I do think that these stereotypes have an impact on, on the way we perceive what's going on around the world, not only because, you know, we have these, these categories that we like to place, you know, large groups of people in, but also what we see on the media, right? And I think that people generally, when they look at footage of what's going on in, in the Middle East or in you know, India or China, there's a perception that what they see is is just a continuous war zone when that's not necessarily the case, right? And so when we bring forward, you know, news articles or, or situations where there's a famine or, or there's, you know, these Muslims are being placed in internment camps, there's almost a sentiment that that is their, their everyday life when that's, you know, very far from the truth. And I think, uh, you know, like Isha pointed out that when we talk about raising money for our, for our kids here at home, we have an understanding that they deserve a better quality of life. But for whatever reason, and, and I do believe the media plays a part, we don't see children around the world also deserving that same quality of life. Well, thank you all for your insight um, and for elaborating a little bit more on the more broad issues. But um, we'll kind of dive a little bit more into the genocide itself. In Xinjiang, China, there's a mass genocide going on. The Uyghurs, a Muslim Turkic speaking ethnic group are being terrorized and tortured. The Chinese government has imprisoned more than 1 million people since 2017 and subjected those not detained to intense surveillance, religious restrictions and forced sterilizations, according to the Council on Foreign Relations. The conditions are so bad that they are compared to the Holocaust. These people are being detained and tortured and for no real reason. According to reports from foreignaffairs.com, detainees are forced to pledge loyalty to the CCP and renounce Islam, as well as sing praises for communism and learn Mandarin. WRFL reporter Ola Onitiri talked with Chinese UK student Sylvia Lau regarding this issue. The weird Muslims in China have been terrorized for a while now. And the world is getting to see this horrific situations that these Muslims go through. And Sylvia Lau said she was shocked to hear about what was happening to these Muslims when she found out about the news. Friends of mine 
have asked me what happened in Weir Muslim. They told me that they saw some news reported that over the past one year or so, Xinjiang stepped up its program of mass surveillance, detention, and assimilation of Muslims. At the first beginning, I was so I've never heard of news like this when I was in China. Sylvia was surprised to hear about this going on in her country due to the government's control of the media. I didn't really know about the news in China because the government does not really release news like that to the public. Sylvia hopes that more light will be shed on this issue. For WRFL Radio, I'm Ola Onatiri. Following that, WRFL reporter Ola Onatiri reports on how some celebrities have been speaking out on these issues. Arsenal star Mesut Ozil has been a advocate for what is happening in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs and has been using his platform to bring light to the issue. Mesut said in response to the silence of other Muslims, Qurans are being burnt, mosques are being shut down, Muslim schools are being banned, religious scholars are being killed, brothers are for forcefully being sent to camps. The Arsenal player posted in Twitter and Instagram, the Muslim voice in the moon used to call East Turkestan. For WRFL Radio, I'm Ola Onateri. So I'll start by asking, I found out about the genocide through media, um, but as Bilal mentioned, it's kind of skimmed over. Uh, it's not really a main focus um, for American society, but I would say probably a lot of other countries as well. Um, do you all care to elaborate um, A, on the issue, and B, explain how you all found out about it? And kind of, uh, Isha, you mentioned fundraising. Just elaborate on that experience a little bit more. Yes, of course. So this past summer, I was, you know, scrolling through Instagram and social media, and then I kind of found out about the entire genocide that was taking place. And um, there was this one activist, I forget her name, um, and she did like the makeup video. And I don't know if you guys know about the makeup video, but she did the makeup video. And, and so I watched her video and it was kind of really shocking and also captivating at the same time, because I was like, the, you're right. Like the world is silent about this issue and no one is speaking out about it. And then it, we were in the midst of a global pandemic. So I felt really dis disconcerted and I, I felt like I couldn't really do much. Like I couldn't take action against this this issue and so this fall I decided that like it was my I don't know my internal obligation to act because I was like the entire world is silent about these people that are being put into concentration camps and these people that are being tortured every single day and they don't have like no one is advocating for them and even like the issue the initiatives that are in place are mainly like letter writing campaigns to congress which are you know those are equally as important but we need to have some sort of monetary support for these nonprofits that are doing on the ground work. So then I decided to partner up with Bellarmine's SGA campus and campus ministry, and also UofL's MSA to host a fundraiser for Uyghur Muslims. Our goal initially was $500, right? And we were going to do this like a two week campaign. We even had a run that took place on Friday, and it had a pretty successful turnout. But instead of raising $500, I was so just astounded and inspired and empowered by the people that were learning about this genocide uh, because of our activism, because we decided 
to bring this issue to the forefront. And because of that, we were able to raise over $1,900 when our initial goal was $500. And we, we were skeptical at first, too, because we were like, you know, it's COVID and who's going to donate? And, you know, we were questioning people's humanity. We, we were being skeptical of their um, willingness to donate and their goodwill, but they showed me, they really did. And throughout this entire experience, I feel like now more than ever, we have the opportunity to act and we have the opportunity to find the solutions and make small scale changes like within our own microcosm. It just takes action and it takes work. And as long as you're willing to put in the work, that's all that matters. So I actually, um, this time last year, I think when it first started or before a little bit, I was a senior and there was a student, I was saying um, I minored in Arabic in undergrad. So I took a lot of Arabic classes, history of the Middle East. And one of the students in the class was a Uyghur Muslim. Uh, his parents were immigrants and the professor would always talk about him. He never said it himself who he was. And then um, for a few weeks, he was absent and the professor kept talking about what's going on. And it was like, not even on the news. Like, like Isha said, literally, I only saw it once on Instagram with the makeup where it's like, you see the first five seconds, because that's all people want to see. And then it goes into like, oh, but do you really know what's going on? And that's how I started learning about it. The Middle Eastern news habit a lot more. So I was able to see it. Like if my parents were watching the news, my sister's in political science. So she always kept me posted and those kind of things. But knowing someone more on a personal level in class was a really big awakening. I'm from Syria. So I know just how, not discrimination, but like uh, harsh treatment, maltreatment towards people are. So when I heard about his story and his parents, who he was trying to bring to the U.S. And of course, with Trump's time and, you know, how easy it is for Muslims to come into the United States at the moment. He was having a really hard time. So, and unfortunately they got stuck into a camp eventually last year. So that's when I think I really dove into it a bit more to really understand, start posting about it. Like Isha said, it's nowhere on the news. And when you talk to people about it, most people are like, one, they're unaware. And unfortunately living in the United States, a lot of people are like, oh, but you know how Muslims are and maybe they kind of deserve it or maybe that. Unfortunately, this is like an ignorant point of view and it's out there. You you get it a lot, but I think the biggest issue is it's not out there enough. I see more about Miley Cyrus and the Kardashians than I've seen one post about the Uyghur Muslims. So I think that's the bigger issue at the moment is like awareness that people don't really care about. I mean, if it pertains to them, I think they give a little more thought into it. Like Isha said, like you really don't know. People surprise you about who who's more aware, who's less aware. But unfortunately, most people just don't know about it. And I think that's the biggest issue at the moment. I was just gonna say, so I mean, you know, I I first heard about the the mistreatment of the Uyghurs actually about four years ago in one of my high school courses. Uh, it was my professor, or I should say teacher, because it was high school. So my teacher in in AP comparative government and politics mentioned it and. I think it had always been something that that I had known because it has been going on a lot longer than just some, you know the recent uh, events that have taken place. And I think what you see happening there, in particular with the Uyghurs, is just an extension of what China is doing at large um, in terms of suppressing those cultural minority groups um, in the country to to maintain that that homogenous society, right? And 
you know, I think awareness is, is obviously important, right? Because that applies pressure. And, and I mean, you know, if we allow for the, the world to turn a blind eye, then there's no incentive to stop. But ultimately, I think it's also a failure on the part of the international community to reject this notion of, of protecting diversity in favor of these trade deals or, or economic development, right? And it's the, it's the reason that most of these majority Muslim countries have also just sat on their hands during this moment. And I think you have to ask yourself, how many times are, are we as a, a, a global society going to make that same mistake where, you know, rather than valuing human lives, we, we look towards capital gains. Well, you both mentioned this makeup video and I personally have not seen it. So do you care to describe what that was and how it came across your page, I guess? Either. I remember her name now. It's Feroza Aziz. And so basically the video starts off with her doing like, hey guys, and like doing my makeup, yada, yada, yada. This is my eyelash extension, yada, yada. And then she's like, now that I've got your attention, this is what's happening in China with the Uyghur Muslims. And here's why you should care instead of caring about superficial things like makeup. I actually didn't see her specifically. I don't know who it was. I was just looking at like the feed and it came out. And it was a while back. And I think now everyone does it now. Like they do what they're best at, whether it's makeup, whether it's other things. And like, they'll talk about things like Palestine, like the Uyghurs, like the France, what's going on in France. I don't know if we'll be covering that today, but it's huge what's going on right now. It's a better way because the media isn't showing things anymore. And this is people's more personal way of showing these kinds of things. But at the same time, it's not enough, unfortunately. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Come back, we're going to continue our discussion on the maltreatment of Muslims across the world. This portion of WRFL's programming is made possible in part by Skechel Media. Skechel Media is an independent bookstore and gift shop in Lexington offering a selection of new and used books as well as other novelty items. Skechel Media is located at 371 South Limestone and can be reached at 859-255-4316. WRFL thanks Skechel for supporting College Radio. Welcome back. We're going to continue our discussion with Bilal Sheikh, Isha Khan, and Huda Kutma on the maltreatment of Muslims across the world. So uh, Bilal, you mentioned the international scale and Huda, you just mentioned France, but uh, we're going to kind of shift away from China and into India where there's been a lot of violence. Um, and it began on Sunday, February 23rd, just before US President Donald Trump arrived in the country for meetings with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and quickly escalated into mass riots with Hindu mobs targeting Muslim homes in the city's Northeast. Um, and at least 45 people were killed, mostly Muslims. WRFL reporter Ola Anatiri reports on a biased government policy against Indian Muslims. According to hwr.org, Government policy has also reflected bias against Muslims. Since October 2018, Indian authorities have deported over a dozen Rohingya Muslims to Yanma, despite the risks to their lives and security. After winning a second term in May 2019, the government revoked the constitutional autonomy of India's only Muslim-majority states, Jammu and Kashmir, and anticipating protests, deployed additional troops detained thousands, and cut off phone and internet connections. The police have failed to intervene when BJP supporters engage in speech inciting violence or mob attacks, or are quick to arrest critics of the government. 
during protests against the citizenship law response. In many cases, when BJP-affiliated groups attacked protesters, the police did not intervene. However, in BJP states in December, police used excessive and unnecessary lethal force, killing at least 30 people during protests and injuring scores more. In Delhi in February, some policemen actively participated in mob attacks on Muslims. WRFL Radio, I am Ola Onateri. So, um, Huda, would you mind to elaborate more on what you started to touch on that's going on um, in France? Yeah, um, I just wanted to add something about the India um, the issues going on. It actually started a while before. Uh, my grandfather's a theologist and he was actually going for a conference there. It was uh, supposed to be in January, so he was supposed to go end of December to January and they had to cancel it because they were too afraid of like Muslims coming in, especially since he was speaking at the conference. Um, so it actually started a while back. Again, this is the issue with, uh, with media in general. With France, unfortunately, it's been a long time. Um, it's been, I think now we're finally seeing it in the media more, but their hatred towards Muslims has gone a bit too far to the point that they want to track Muslims now. They want to put, they want to monitor them at schools. They want them to, they want to strip them of their religious coverings of anything that identifies them as Muslims. I actually know a lot of people there and unfortunately it's gotten even more harder. Like in the past, um, even wearing like the hijab to school or even out in public was a struggle. But now it's the point that like it's become dangerous for them to come out in it. And there's a huge Algerian Moroccan population in France. These are like original. Like I know people that were born and raised and they have grandkids, the whole generation, like five generations worth but now they fear for their lives and their religion identity now than they have since generations. I was not aware that it was going on for that long. And like you said, that's kind of the problem with social media. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't really know what the best solution is for that. So, I mean, do you all have any ideas of, you know, what as a society can we do to kind of get past this really ignorance about what's going on and, the media just kind of ignoring it really you know we can put pressure on congress people and the president etc but you know what individually and as a society do you think is the best solution for things like this i think education is so important i'm going to give a small example um when i was in high school and this actually pertains to france we had french exchange students from a small city in france and we'd exchange and every year they did this to us. Me and my sister were the hijab. We were the only two in the high school at that time. We went to a private school. And every time they came, they go and speak to my French teacher about every time they saw us, oh my God, you let them wear the scarf. Go help them, go help them. Let them take it off. They're being forced, they're being harassed. Don't let them go home. And Honestly, I, I thank my teacher every day for this. She was very well aware. She always asked us questions. She was like, no, that is their choice. They do this and they are proud. They've told me this before. This was every year, all of my four years, every year that these French, or I think it was two, two years that they came. We go into the same thing where it was like, oh my God, or they'd like look at us. They don't want to talk to us or whatever it was. And like, it was really my teacher who stood up for us more than anybody else. And I think it's because she was well aware and educated about who we are, why we do this and what Muslims and Islam really is, 
that she was the one who was getting madder than we are. She'd come up to us like so mad and tell us like, this is what they said to me. I was like, it, that's, that's okay. We deal with us on a daily basis. We just appreciate your support. And I think like everyone's mentioned, it's not enough on the media. And I think education is the most important thing right now. I think, you know, particularly when we talk about India or, or other situations that are, that are ongoing in the Middle East, people like to paint it as, you know, just this religious violence, this like primordial, you know, hatred for each other that they always have and they always will. Um, and, and the problem with that is, you know, first it, it ignores the centuries of cooperation that you've seen in those regions, right? Um, but I think, you know, it, it makes the issue seem intractable when it's not, right? I think ultimately 90, 95% of these conflicts stem from the imperial, the imperialist times, right? And these colonial powers that were in the area and, and drew lines all over the map. And, but when you talk about, you know, the Muslim world, people tend to ignore the achievements that they had prior from the Mughal Empire, or the Ottoman Empire. And, and there's this, you know, belief that, that they are how they always were when that's, you know, very far from the truth. And I think, you know, when Huda talks about an education, we need to have this education that's not so ethnocentric, uh, so focused on on what the West has done and, and ignoring, you know, the centuries of, and, and, you know, millennia of progress that have occurred in, in the East. Um, you know, and, and I think we talk about the media and how it's, you know, broad and it's, it's you know, this giant conglomerate, it's almost, you know, detached and, and difficult to influence. But I don't think that that's true either, right? I mean, it starts on a community level. It starts with, you know, settings such as this one where you, you can have the opportunity, the platform to increase Muslim representation, amplify their voices. You know, we look at radio, Hollywood, government, this opportunity for Muslims to, to portray themselves allows for, you know, people who, who may not have those personal relationships or may not have that education to gain a perspective that they would have otherwise never seen. Um, and I think that that is, you know, one of the most important things that you can do. You both have kind of mentioned and Huda specifically mentioned the issue of hijabs. And I have some statistics to share that I'm sure will not be surprising. But so according to the ACLU, statistics show that 69% of women who wore a hijab reported at least one incident of discrimination compared to 29% of women who did not wear one. And the ACLU also reports that at work, Muslim women can't wear hijabs and some have even been fired for wearing one. And in school, girls are usually asked to refrain from wearing them. And in law enforcement, Muslim women have been denied the right to wear a headscarf while in jail, in courthouse detention centers. And have also, women have been assaulted by police when being arrested or calling police for help simply because of wearing the hijab. WRFL reporter Ola Anatiri reports on the misconception regarding the hijab. Around the world, it is believed that Muslim women are forced to wear a hijab against their will, but that is not entirely true. UK student Iman Gunim says this misconception is completely wrong and that many Muslim women choose to wear hijabs as a representation of their religion. But specifically in America, a lot of people will think that Muslim women need to be saved or that they need to... um be protected because they think that Muslim men are forcing us to like cover ourselves, which is not true. While hijabs are a position of being Muslim, it has had a negative impact on Muslim women as well. 
Iman says that wearing a hijab brings out a negative response towards Muslim women in this modern society. I think Muslim women are more specifically targeted because you can visibly see that we're Muslim because I wear hijab. And whether people know why I wear it or what it's for, they can easily identify that as she's Muslim. And of course, like, you know, because of all the terrorist attacks and like everything in this society, people are going to associate it with something negative. Iman says that the discrimination against Muslim women because they wear a hijab is not okay. But WRFL Radio, I am Ola Natera. Following that, um, I was not surprised by those statistics from the ACLU. Would any of you like to elaborate on those, explain your feelings towards that, talk about the misconception from your experience and why it is a misconception? Why do people believe all of the negative things surrounding the hijab? So I'm not surprised at all. I do believe that, like I mentioned earlier, statistics are more limited. I think if we spoke to a more broader community, I'll like from experience right now in medical school, I have to think a lot more than most people about how I'm supposed to dress, how I'm supposed to come about, especially like, let's pretend I have to use a stethoscope. How am I supposed to wear my scarf in a way and how people are going to present, how I'm supposed to present myself to people in a way that, that they wouldn't say, oh, I don't want you there. I actually shared my concerns and they, I met with a resident and she told me she gets kicked out of her room once a month because of somebody who's like, I don't want you here. You are not a doctor. You are not this. I mean, this is just something right now that I'm like really just a bit concerned about, but it's our whole lives like this. I started wearing the hijab when I was in seventh grade and not a day went by or a week went by without hearing a comment. And Allah was right. A lot of people just think that like, oh, you're forced to, or why would you wear that? Or like coming from like, Louisville, I got a lot of comments saying, oh, did you just dye your hair we got wrong? Or all kinds of comments. I could go on for hours about everything that I've heard. But um, I think the main concern is like just the judgments we get before we even open our mouths into anything. Like for me to say that I'm in med school for a lot of people is a shock. I'm like, why does it have to be such a surprise? The Muslim world is some of the most educated people. If we look back in time, if I say my father's a physician or everyone in my family is educated, that's a big shock for most people. And it's like, why? Just because my parents are immigrants doesn't mean that we come in with zero knowledge into the world. I think that's the biggest misconception, that we're not educated, that we're stuck at home, that we're oppressed. And the name calling that we get, where we're from, just straight off the bat, you can't even like buy without somebody. Where are you from? Like, why does it have to be that that is the first question before anything else? So unfortunately, the misconceptions are present. I don't think they're going to go away for a long time. Like I mentioned, I think people just need to know more about it, why we do it. It's not because we're oppressed or anything, but it comes from a more sensible reason than that. Um, and I think just being in Kentucky makes it really hard. I grew up here most all my life, basically. And so I had a lot of fun wearing the headscarf. I actually, when I wore the headscarf in seventh grade, the entire school quit talking to me and my sister. I have a twin. I wasn't allowed to go to a teacher's office or the principal's office. We weren't allowed to use the office's phone. There was just a lot of things. So 
unfortunately they're there like to tell you that they're not I'm even coming in for interviews for anything like you said about the jobs it is always the biggest fear how are we supposed to be portraying ourselves and for anybody else it's not even that hard but for us to have to think twice about doing anything like for me to go into medical school at every interview it's like how do I dress for people to not see me because of how how different I look but by like the brain that I have in here or the personality that I have. And that's why we even wear the headscarf. But unfortunately, it's a double negative here at the, in the States because it's like, oh, you look different and it also looks oppressive. So unfortunately, it's it hasn't been easy, but uh, I think the few supporters that we've had along the way go a long way. I was going to say, no, I think, I mean, so I don't wear a job, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm a male, but my mom does. Um, and she's worn it for, for about 15 years now. And I think, you know, if you were to go in her closet, you'll see, you know, her a shelf with, with all of her headscarves and then, and, and then there's a shelf with hats, right? And whenever we're packing, going on vacation, th- there's a question of, you know, where we're going, you know, wh- like who, who are the type of people that are going to be there? Are we going to be flying? And those decisions like are decisions that my mom has to make where am I going to wear this scarf or am I going to wear this hat right to, to just avoid that conversation altogether I think you know I mean Huda is definitely right that there is this idea that it's a form of oppression when in reality I mean the modesty is a choice as well right I mean it's you know when we talk about giving these women freedom it's the freedom to literally do what they please right and so this would fall directly under that umbrella I wouldn't go so far as to say that everybody who sees it is so concerned for for that woman's safety or, or concerned that they're being oppressed I think some people see it and it just evokes that same imagery that they see from al-qaeda or whatever they see in the middle east and there's just a, a hatred of you know that in and of itself and much less you know what it stands for or what their choice was to wear it or not I think there are people that you know, don't look beyond the symbolism of it. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of conversations to be had around whether or not, you know, we we want to permit the hijab. But in my opinion, I believe the argument about, you know, oppressing women, it doesn't doesn't hold water and it it seems to be more of a farce than it does, you know, any type of, of logical opinion. I just wanted to add something actually that Bilal just reminds me of. If you look at any social media, with a hijab in it, which is very, or, or uh, sorry, TV shows and movies, which are very, very few. A show like Quantico, I don't know if anyone has watched it. Um, I quit after I found out what they, so there was uh, twins that wear the hijab. I forget where they're from. I watched it a few years ago. And one ends up like taking it off, but because she feels like oppressed and she can't do it anymore. And then most Muslims, as well as myself, quit the show because it was like, you had one chance to, to, portray something good at a, uh, as hijabis, people who wear the hijab, and you ruined it. And everybody who watched it, and I loved the show. I loved it. And like, it was very hard to quit it. But when I saw that, I was like, there's no point in supporting a show where they see you as someone who is demeaning or as oppressed. So it's it's still out there. Even in, that's why it gets me mad um, in movies or TV shows, you can count the hijabis in it. And even with that, they're most of the time like made fun of or they show out their oppression or something along those lines. 
Well, thank you all so much for joining us this evening. I have learned a lot um, and I appreciate you all sharing your experiences um, to help enlighten everyone listening um, on not only the genocide, but the stereotype issues um, and just the treatment, uh, the maltreatment of Muslims around the world. So thank you to our listeners for joining us this evening. I'm Sarah Simon-Pashas and you're listening to WRFL 88.1 FM.